I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, where we talk with deal makers about the deals they do and the hobbies in which they engage. And today we are with Frank Aquila, the global head of M&A at Sullivan and Cromwell. Frank, thanks for joining us. David, good to see you, as always. Uh, very busy fall, and in fact, 2019 for you. So, so maybe let's start by uh, talking about some of the, the pharma deals on which you worked, uh, and then we'll talk about the Tiffany's LVMH situation, a, a fascinating one in which you represented uh, Tiffany's, then uh, a little bit about uh, AB InBev's purchase of Craft Brew Alliance, uh, and and kind of the challenges at AB InBev and another one of your uh, consumer clients, uh, Diageo Face. And, and finally, a little bit about your own interest in uh, food and wine when you're not representing companies that sell food and wine. Uh, so I guess to, to start with, with pharma, you were involved in, in two uh, really significant transactions this year, uh, Amgen's purchase of Tesla. Uh, and then uh, Novartis's agreement to buy Medicines Co. Uh, I, I guess if you could take each one of those in turn and, and tell us a little bit about uh, those deals, at least one of which is still in process, and uh, you know what made them. Well, actually, both are closed now. Oh, fantastic! Mm-hmm. We closed the Medicines Company uh, deal yesterday, but uh, you know both were uh, you know very different uh, deals. Uh, I've been working on. Uh, uh, you know, healthcare, major healthcare transactions, really going back to the mid '90s, uh, represented Marion Merrill Dow when it was acquired by Herxt. That became what is today uh, Roche. Uh, represented uh, the Upjohn Company when it merged uh, with Pharmacia, which eventually was acquired by uh, Pfizer for sixty plus billion dollars. Uh, so I've been doing uh, these deals for a long time. Uh, the Engine deal was, uh, you know, pretty interesting for a couple of different reasons. It wound up uh, acquiring uh, the product of Tesla, which was uh, uh, a pharmaceutical, a small molecule. Uh, basically, it's a, a drug that uh, treats uh, psoriatic arthritis and uh, psoriasis, which are essentially the same dia- uh, same uh, disease. They just simply hit different parts of the uh, body. Uh, that's the first uh, pharmaceutical that Amgen, which is uh, the world's largest biologics company, biologics are large molecules, pharmaceuticals are small molecules. And does that distinction from a corporate perspective how much does that distinction matter for companies like Amgen at this point? Or, or does it really matter at all to them? Well, I think historically it certainly has. Uh, I think in terms of uh, you know, uh, a company like Amgen, uh, which focuses basically on biologics, certainly their R&D is focused uh, you know, strictly on biologics. This was a, a real opportunity for them because oh, Tesla is a blockbuster drug, very it's very rare that somebody would go out and sell a drug like Tesla, which is over $2 billion annually in sales. But uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb was acquiring Celgene, was required to uh, sell the brand. Uh, while there's a lot of uh, competition in the, uh, uh, in the space, uh, 
there wasn't, uh, you know, and, and, and Amgen is in the space, but on the biologic side, it had no pharmaceuticals. So therefore, it was able to make this uh, acquisition. It was a very good uh, buyer, and they bought it for about $13.5 billion. Quick question, just historically, has, has the way in which you as a lawyer have handled the IP issues on these transactions evolved over the, the course of your career, or, or do you treat the IP issues in these deals, which are obviously central, essentially the same way now you would have in the 80s? Well, I, th I think there's two ways of looking at it. There is the IP uh, due diligence and making sure that uh, the company that's being sold, the company that's being acquired, is, has the rights to the IP. Uh, obviously, that's essentially what you're buying when you're doing uh, a biologic or healthcare or pharmaceutical deal. Uh, so there's that portion of it. That really hasn't changed. A lot of that is in-house, obviously. Our IP lawyers uh, get very much involved in that. Uh, and then there's the transfer issues. Now, if you're buying a public company, like a medicines company, you know, you're going to get whatever rights they have. When you're carving something out, like a Tesla from a cell gene, then you have to make sure that you're getting all the rights that go with that product. And that becomes uh, something which is a negotiation. And while that's probably uh, a bit more intense today than it was 20 or 30 years ago, uh, like all the negotiations are because you learn from, uh, you know, issues of the past. So you certainly will uh, be doing that, but uh, you know, it's, it's essentially the same process, but probably uh, a bit more robust today than before. And certainly, if you're buying a brand or a product or IP for $13 million, you can have one level, one threshold. If you're buying a product or a brand or IP for $13.5 billion, your threshold uh, you know, is it, going to be much higher and the, and the negotiation is going to be much more intense. Uh, and, and turning to, to the, the Novartis Medicines Code deal, tell us a little bit about that one. Sure. Uh, you know, the, the medicines company has been around for a, a while. Uh, they uh, you know, have a variety of products. Uh, their uh, you know, main uh, product, uh, which is in clinical trials, uh, is a biologic. And uh, so... Uh, uh, Novartis, which obviously has biologics as part of its uh, array of products. I mean, Novartis is one of the world's largest uh, healthcare companies. Uh, you know, it is not strictly a uh, biologics company. Uh, they essentially were acquiring a company that's uh, you know strictly a biologics company, and uh, you know it's different because you're acquiring a public company, and uh, it's also different because. Uh, you know, we were able to do uh, a cash tender offer and essentially we were able to go from signing uh, just before Thanksgiving uh, to a closing just after uh, New Year's Day. So, uh, you know, we were able to uh, sign it up. We were able to launch the tender offer. We were able to file all the regulatory approvals, clear all the regulatory approvals, get all the financing in place, and get that uh, closed. And that was, you know, a nine point six billion dollar uh, transaction. So that went 
at really sort of record speed, if you will. Uh, so, so for a deal that size, it sounds like a very smooth transaction. It, it, you know, it took a long time to bring it together, uh, but uh, once we got it signed up uh, and we were able to sort of take it forward, we were able to move it forward uh, very, very quickly. And, and at the, the same time as, as uh, you were uh, negotiating that transaction on behalf of the Martis, you were representing Tiffany's as it was uh, facing an approach uh, from LVMH, uh, one of the highest profile deals of last year. Tell us a little bit about that situation. Certainly. Uh, as I think uh, you know, most people know by now, because... Uh, you know, obviously, it was a uh, large transaction, $16-plus plus billion transaction, uh, and it uh, had uh, plenty of uh, uh, publicity. Uh, you know, it was not only in the business and general uh, press uh, all over the world, but uh, you know, it was covered in Women's Wear Daily and Vogue and Esquire. And, and as I understand it, I, I've been told that Women's Wear Daily has better deal gossip on stories in its industry than, than any publication there is. I will tell you, uh, having done uh, a fair bit of deal in bit of deals in consumer and in retail. Uh, they uh, certainly have upped their game over the last few years, and uh, you know uh, they have some very savvy uh, uh, business reporters working for them these days. That's that's absolutely true. And how for, for a deal with with that kind of attention from from very specialized press to to, to uh, really broad mass market press. What challenges does that create for you as an advisor, especially on the target side? Well, first of all, you're operating under a microscope. And I think to pull back for a second, this is a situation. Tiffany was not in a situation where it was putting itself up for sale. And uh, Tiffany was in a position where it was repositioning itself. And I think when you look at the market in which Tiffany operates, first of all, uh, luxury is a sector that's been doing very, very well. Uh, within luxury, the two fastest selling, uh, the fastest growing segments within luxury are uh, fine jewelry and shoes. Within fine jewelry, only about 25 uh, 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 to 35% of fine jewelry today is, is branded. And that uh, low. Yeah, it's relatively low. So when you, you, you ha and, and that part's growing, uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, this why historically is that, that percentage been, that's far lower than I would have expected because you almost your first, the first thing you think of, I mean, this is why Tiffany is so valuable when you think of luxury jewelry is, is that little blue box from Tiffany's. Right. And, and Tiffany's has always been clearly one of the big players. And, you know, Tiffany's is, uh, you know, uh, you know, Tiffany's is associated with, you know, lots of great imagery, uh, you know, Audrey Hepburn, New York City, love, uh, 
the blue box. Uh, so, you know, uh, certainly diamonds, uh, you know, it's just the world's largest seller of diamonds. And, uh, you know, it, it, it has that sort of, uh, you know, uh, imagery around it, which makes it a very uh, a valuable uh, platform. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, it, it has done over the last few years has, you know, really gone into, you know, gold and you know it is traditionally like you know most american and english jewelers has been had a heavy presence in silver and that's just a historical thing it's moved more into gold more into uh, colored jewelry and has been very, very successful in that it's moved uh, into uh, china uh you know it's made more forays into uh, uh europe uh you know so uh it, it wasn't you know ready to be sold, uh, but, uh, you know, obviously uh, a board understands that uh, when somebody comes along with an unsolicited offer, obviously you can reject it, but if it's in the right price zone, you have to consider it, and, uh, you know, this was a very diligent board. Uh, you know, you could go to the proxy statement and see the exact number of uh, board meetings between the time the offer came in and the time that uh, the offer was accepted. But I think what was very, very clear is that the board was, you know, quite diligent, met on a very, very regular and consistent basis. And to go back to what your question was, you know, what's the challenge when there's all this, you know, chatter out there, all these different reports, some of it true, some of it partially true, some of it completely not true at all. And, you know, the challenge is to make sure that the directors understand the only thing they should be thinking about is the discussions in the boardroom, the facts that they hear from management, the analysis that they hear from their legal and financial advisors, uh, you know, and the discussions that they have, you know, among themselves, exercising their fiduciary duties, making sure that as they go through the process, they understand, you know, what the fiduciary duties are and whatever. And as I say, uh, you know, this is a stock that was trading at, you know, uh, roughly $89 a share. The initial offer was $120. And, uh, you know, we wound up in a relatively short period of time at, uh, you, know, uh, you know, $135 a share, which, uh, you know, is a, uh, you know, a good uh, move when you were trading at $89 a share. And, you know, even a good move when you start out at $120 a share. And so, uh, you know, it's really keeping the board uh, focused on, you know, what are the, uh, you know, essential issues that they have to consider. And, and just a, a, a brief side question. You, you mentioned the two fastest growing uh, subsectors in luxury are jewelry and shoes. Is, is shoes uh, as, as uh not consolidated as jewelry, or is that a much more consolidated luxury shoes category? My understanding is that shoes is 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 probably less consolidated. I don't think jewelry is consolidated. Right. Oh no, no, no. It sounds uh, like it's I, but I think that shoes are uh, you know uh, 
uh, have a much higher percentage of branding. Right. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the issue there. Interesting. Um, and, and so that there, there, when you, you draw that comparison, you, you could see an opportunity for, you know, a much higher percentage of branding within the jewelry category of luxury goods. Right. Right. But, you know, if you want a, you know, half million dollar diamond ring, you can walk just a couple of blocks from here and get a half million dollar diamond ring. Uh, that, that's spectacular. Uh, yeah. When, you know, because how three blocks, three blocks, Forty Seventh Street here, yeah. You, so you can get some spectacular jewelry there, particularly diamonds. And and finally, another deal you you signed up in the fall, uh, uh, EB InBev's uh, agreement to buy uh, the uh, I think 69 percent of Craft Brew Alliance that it didn't already own. Uh, a, a very long relationship between initially Anheuser Busch and, and Craft Brew Alliance. Can you talk about that relationship and, and that transaction? Sure. You know, uh, obviously, uh, you know uh, that was uh, you know good for the the shareholders there because it allowed them to uh, you know monetize their shares at a, a nice premium. Uh, you know, it, it really doesn't, uh, you know, change uh, a, a lot because, uh, you know, the, these beers were already flowing through the AB InBev uh, network and whatever. Uh, so, you know, it, it sort of just made a lot of sense to do for, uh, you know, both uh, uh, AB InBev and the uh, CBA shareholders. Uh, and AB InBev, I, I mean, you, you represent, I, I believe, InBev on the deal that, that created AB InBev. Yes. And you've also done work for Diageo for, for many, many years. Could you talk about the, the changes in that industry, you know, so, some of which are reflected in, in your own deal sheets for those two clients? You know, I think, you know, both are sectors which, uh, you know, have grown, uh, you know, tremendously. Uh, when I st first started doing work for the old brand Met, uh, you had a lot of, uh, you know, relatively small uh, uh, companies that were, you know, sort of uh, national companies, if you will. And so, you know, take a, a, a brand met. They would, uh, you know, give their brands to an American company. And, you know, Ubline at the time, which was owned by R.J. Nabisco, and the Ubline uh, company would distribute the uh, brand met uh, brands here in the United States. And in return, uh, the uh, U-Blind brand, such as, say, a Smirnoff was a U-Blind brand, would be distributed in the UK and elsewhere in Europe by uh, Grand Met. Uh, you know, at the time that uh, InBev made its bid for Anheuser-Busch, uh, you know, the, the core uh, you know, InBev brands were being distributed in the United States by Anheuser-Busch and, uh, you know, some of their brands were distributed in other parts of the world by InBev. And so, you know, these sorts of uh, distributor relationships in different parts of the world, uh, you know, were sort of the way it worked. And, uh, you know, today what you find is that, uh, you know, there's uh, a, a lot more competition and a lot more and I think this is particularly important is 
you find that as these companies have uh, have grown, not only has the competition become much more intense, but the innovation has become greater. And uh, you know, if you you want to look between sort of 1925 or really the end of prohibition to 1985, you know, the brands were basically the same. And you see that when you look at movies in different periods, you see what was on the shelf. And now you see the brands, uh, you know, from a movie 10 years ago and movies today. And some of the brands that you see today didn't exist 10 years ago. Some of them didn't exist five years ago. And so, uh, you know, uh, with consolidation has uh, come uh, not only more intense competition, I believe, but certainly much more innovation in the consumer space. And is that true in luxury as well? Okay, kind of returning to the to the Tiffany's piece of the conversation, there's a the desire, especially on the part of younger consumers, for for what they perceive of as, as an authentic experience. You know, pressures companies, any kind of consumer company, to to keep coming up with new, fresh brands, new, new, fresh uh, styles, and uh, you know, variations. Uh, you know, if you come up with a particular design, it's not just one design that every single person is going to want. You're going to want variations on it. You're going to want different sizes, different uh, colors. Uh, you know, white gold, rose gold, yellow gold. Uh, and so it's much more challenging for the designer and the retailer to uh, you know meet the level of demand. And I think, as we know, you know, in, in retail and consumer goods, uh, you know, for every huge success you have, uh, you know, there's probably going to be a lot of flops along the way. So it's it's a very challenging environment for consumer goods companies and retailers. So, so you would expect the consumer goods companies to to continue to, on occasion, have to or want to buy emerging brands and and give that brand the opportunity to grow with the greater distribution help. I mean, if you look at uh, the the consumer packaged goods space, you know, let's let's talk about food uh, for a minute. Uh, you know, uh, while you know the the really big historic companies have certainly had their share of innovation. Most of the innovation in consumer packaged foods has really come from smaller companies, some of whom get acquired, some of whom grow and, and consolidate themselves. But the real innovation seems to come out of these uh, smaller companies that you know, don't have the uh, you know, goal of increasing quarterly profits every single quarter that, you know, can have a period where they don't need to grow, don't need to make a profit. Uh, kind of switching again to, to your own interest in, in uh, food and wine, which dovetails nicely with, with some of your client work. Uh, I, I guess where, start with, with where you enjoy eating in New York at this point. Uh, you know, uh, one place that I really love, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not been around for long, but it's been around for a couple of years now, is uh, Don Angie down in the West Village on Greenwich Avenue. Uh, uh, Scott and Angie, who are married, uh, you know, uh, they're great chefs and uh, just really, uh, um, you know, and they're very clear. Their, their cuisine is not Italian cuisine. It's 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 modern uh, Italian American 
but they're you know extraordinarily uh, creative. Uh, you know, everything you taste there is delicious, and uh, you know. Uh, if I have any complainants, uh, I can't get in there enough. Uh, and uh, everything from their 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 cocktails to uh, you know uh, all their menu items are just uh, absolutely fabulous. And uh, it, it's a place I, I certainly don't get bored of going to. Uh, and, and in terms of uh, you mentioned cocktails, I mean part of the uh, part of what's driven you know the, the this. You know, rise of some of the new brands in uh, uh, spirits is craft cocktails. Are there are there places in in New York or elsewhere you you really enjoy going for for that experience? And and how does that experience change how you you relate to your your clients in that business? Sure. Uh, you know, uh, people would, would think that you know I do nothing but consume alcohol <laughs> based upon my knowledge, but uh, you know. Uh, I do enjoy, uh, you know, alcohol and, uh, you know, I, I, I like, uh, you know, sampling lots of different uh, types of uh, uh, beers. And, uh, you know, uh, I also like, you know, on the, on the liquor side, going to a place like the Brandy Library, where it's a sort of very pure experience. And, uh, you know, you're getting to taste some things you know, because they have so many different stuff down there that you don't often taste. But I also like to go to, you know, some, you know, really awesome uh, cocktail bars. Uh, I will say that uh, there are some places in Asia that are way ahead of us. Uh, you know, uh, two places that I really like, uh, one in Hong Kong and one in Tokyo I'll mention, uh, the place in Hong Kong is called The Old Man. It's uh, in uh, the Soho section of uh, Hong Kong. It's, it's, you have to go down the back alley. Uh, I think if you sort of said, hey, I'm going to take you to this place for cocktails, and you sort of drag this person down this back alley, they start to get kind of nervous. But, it, you know, it's really it's one of the best bars in the world. Uh, the Old Man is, is sort of paying homage to... Uh, uh, you know, Ernest Hemingway. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful bar. It's sort of uh, molecular gastronomy in, 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 uh, in cocktails, but it's really uh, nicely done. Uh, they have cocktails like the Sun Also Rises and, you know, things like that. And it's just really uh, well done and, and a great cocktail bar. Uh, the other place I like, uh, which is in the... Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Ginza section of uh, uh, Tokyo is the uh, uh, Orchard Bar Ginza, and you would never find it unless you knew specifically where it was, and it's like on the sixth or seventh floor of some office building, and it's a little tiny place, and you go in, they have sort of a big basket of fruit, and it changes based upon what it is seasonally. You tell them the fruit that you want. You tell them that the liquor you want. And you tell them, you know, sort of how strong you want it. Do you really want it boozy? you want it light? Whatever. And they come up with a drink for you. And it's, uh, you know, unique and, you know, really spectacular. And so uh, I enjoy a sort of a pure experience. But I also enjoy those interesting, uh, you know, cocktails as well. 
And, and finally, your Sauvignon Cromwell is more or less across the street from the dead rabbit, which is one of the great, you know, one of the- It certainly is, yeah. So, so do, you, do you go to the dead rabbit at all, or, or what's your favorite place to go in New York? For I, you know, I have been to uh, the dead rabbit. Uh, you know, it's sort of uh, inevitable. But, you know, it's like one of those things that, you know, someplace that's across the street from me, you tend not to go to all that often. The place that I really uh, enjoy in New York, and it's been around a long time now, is Angel Share. Uh, I think that uh, you know it, it, it's you know probably uh, one of the world's best bars, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the atmosphere and in terms of uh, uh, you know some of their cocktails. I think one of the uh, uh, problems is I've been telling people for years to go to Angel Share, and now everybody seems to go to Angel Share, but uh, it, it's really. Uh, uh, a, a terrific bar, and it's a terrific, uh, uh, you know, mix of uh, people and, and great cocktails. Awesome, Frank! Thanks so much for joining us. Good chatting with you.